Welcome to Artwork, a podcast produced by Fab NYC, exploring and celebrating the work of artists and cultural workers in New York City. Each episode, we bring to the table two to three guests from the field to reflect upon a different theme. I'm your host, Risa Shoup, and I'm the executive director of Fab NYC. And for those who are just getting to know us, Fab NYC is a place-based arts and cultural advocacy organization that serves the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And through this podcast, we want to not only celebrate the good work and good people in our field, but also we want to encourage discussion and embrace difficult conversations. Collectively, we know a thing or two about life, maybe. Uh, This week's opening and closing music is courtesy of Public Access TV, a band making music here on the Lower East Side. We also have some unintended noise joining us from the outside world today, and I hope you'll bear with us in your listening. Today, we are going to talk about the nebulous but incredibly important topic of leadership, and we are joined by Kay Takeda and Sean Leonardo. Hey, Kay, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. It's a pleasure to be here, Risa. My name is Kay Takeda. I'm the Vice President of Grants and Services for Lower Manhattan Cultural Council, uh, where I oversee our grant-making programs, our professional development programs for artists, and our community initiatives that are currently focused on activating new waterfront spaces on the Lower East Side. I've been in grant-making for over 15 years on the national and international level and now on a much more local level. I'm deeply committed to working with artists, supporting their practice, uh, and finding ways to support their sustainability overall. Thanks, Kay. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Big fans of LMCC here at FAB, and great to have your voice in the conversation. Hi, Sean. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Hi. My name is Sean Leonardo. I'm a visual and performance artist. I am also a manager of school, youth, and community programs at the New Museum here in the Lower East Side on the Bowery, although that title keeps changing. (laughs) We are really invested in, and my position is really indebted to creating relationships in the nearby vicinity and developing partnerships with local community-based organizations and schools. Great. Thanks, John. And the new museum is a wonderful partner for FAB. And we are also glad to have you speaking in our conversation today. So this is a really interesting theme, I think, for all of us to talk about, particularly as we observe uh, our political and social climate unravel and reform around us. But before we get into the meat of things, we're going to do a round of practical excellence. So in this segment, uh, all of us, all three of us, will bring um, a practical application of our work, a concrete act that affects what we do and the people around us. Because as much as some folks would like to believe, it takes sense and reason to do a lot of what we do. So who wants to start? This is Sean. I think I'll jump in. Just recently, I wrote just a simple email, not trying to overthink the language that we often overthink in our institutional roles, just as a check-in to all of our school and community partnerships. Just simply stating that I'm here, Mm. 
that we are invested in this type of work and an acknowledgement that the community members that we all see on a day-to-day basis Mm -hmm. and work with and serve and collaborate with are some of the most vulnerable Mm -hmm. in our immediate circles. And so I find it important every so often to not go back to the day-to-day business Mm -hmm. and simply just write an email or a phone call and and collectively say, how's everybody doing? That's great. I don't think there's anything more practical than humanity and recognizing (laughs) that in our work and that um, we are a lot of things while we're also working in arts and culture and we belong to a lot of communities. So thanks for sharing that, Sean. Um, My practical excellence, um, I think, is a lot more discreet than that. Um, And it's just that I feel like at the end of this weekend, I had sent the number of invitations that I needed to send to a little potluck that we're having for the end of the year here at FAB. And um, I want to highlight that because in this difficult moment, it, we have to make a lot of choices around like, how are we prioritizing all of our work? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really easy to take folks for granted in, in doing that. And that's, that is going to happen. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that we can even avoid that, you know, making priorities that sometimes enable us to take folks for granted, but it's really important to recognize that and then um, confront it when, when we're in dialogue with people and say, Hey, like, I think, I think I took you for granted a little bit and I don't want to do that because of X, Y, Z. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful that I had time and space to do that over the weekend. Um, and it was, it was an important learning experience for me. And I think it'll impact how I make priorities in the future. Yeah. Okay. Hi. I think my example is, uh, more of a one-to-one example. Um, and I think it centers around, uh, getting to know people, uh, where you work, Mm -hmm. Uh, people who may not be in your immediate team, but just keeping your ears open, walking around, finding out what people are doing when they're not at their desks. I was fortunate to be working on a reviewing a report that included some references to art historians with whom I was somewhat familiar, but I knew that a junior staff member in my organization was really excited about this particular scholar and had a lot more to say about her opinions. So I invited that uh, staff member to read the report and chime in specifically on that aspect of it. Um, Definitely just very useful for me in a practical sense to be able to bring the expertise of others into a project. Mm -hmm. Um, But that that kind of opportunity comes about just because you're talking with people and you're finding out what they're doing yep the rest of the time that's great um and you know we did not plan anyone's practical excellence and that is an awesome segue into the topic of leadership mm. and i think all of our practical excellences have have something to do with how we communicate with others and and how we recognize you know our own relationships and 
also our own limitations and in, in the ways that we do that communicating. And now I guess we'll dive into our roundtable discussion of leadership. Uh, I will kick us off with a with a question. And the question is, in what ways do each of you, do I, um, embody the characteristics of a leader in those organizations and otherwise? Anyone in a leadership role kind of needs to set the tone and an example uh, for the people that they're working with in terms of passion, commitment, uh, clarity, uh, focus, uh, and priority, uh, and invite the opinions of others into important decisions. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use a recent program at the New Museum. We recently hosted something that was called Scamming the Patriarchy. And it was a youth summit, and it was always framed as a youth summit. Mm -hmm. However, we probably wrongly did not predict the weight that it would take on two days after the election. Mm. But I'm really going to take this conversation to the planning stages. When it was first envisioned as a program underneath our umbrella thematic of democracy, a theme that all of our output as as an education department would think through. At first, and really throughout, the Youth Summit was looked at through the filter of feminism, specifically the reimagining of that term and the reimagining of those politics for youth moving forward. Where does it work? How does it need to be re-implemented? Where does it need to be reshaped? And so and, and, and so in its planning stages, we understood, and I say we because it was a collective educational department endeavor, that in order to do this properly and to in order to create space for youth in a meaningful way, that in many respects, we had to step out of the way and bring in collaborators that were much more on the ground, that, as I like to say, much more knowledgeable and much more um, entangled with youth and their questions and concerns. So we brought in groups like Bufu, Disc Woman, House of Ladosha, and Brujas, mm. groups that we know not only had a more tangible connection to those audiences, but could bring a knowledge and expertise in how to deliver. Mm. So I think that is an example of horizontal leadership, right? Being able to set aside one's own position and ego in order to create a platform that is informed by many different groups Mm -hmm. collectively. Now, that brings on a whole number of different challenges. And so the other way I would answer that is actually also within the same program. Understanding how an event should and needs to run and acknowledging that at times you need to step in as a leader for guidance is highly important for things to run smoothly and for things to run effectively. Now, what that means is understanding when to chime in and understanding where there are the gaps, allowing everyone else to be leaders in the room, but Mm -hmm. at the same time identifying the holes. 
So you both talked about um, a little bit about how leadership functions within your institutions. And Sean, thank you for going so in depth about how leadership functioned within this particular event at the new museum and talking and opening up the conversation to be about horizontal um, leadership and how we create um, trust-based relationships, right? By, by bringing in other people and in that knowing when to step back, but then also you address the issue of sometimes needing to come forward in order to guide and learn as a leader. Um, and, and Kay, I guess I'm going to kick this back over to you and ask if you can tell us a little bit about your work at LMCC and the other places that you've worked about how, um, how leadership functions through the various tools that you mentioned. I guess I'll start with LMCC Mm -hmm. where I, since I've been there for 12 years, um, Definitely seen uh, a lot of leadership changes at the executive level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been a core member of the senior team for all that time. Uh, there's also a lot of stability in that senior team. A couple of people have been there 12 years, another person 10. I think that when you've been in an institution for a long time, uh, your role within leadership has, a, on the one hand, a stabilizing role. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where a certain, uh, you know, being really clear with your expectations, um, being communicative with people you bring onto your team, um, having a kind of philosophical grounding in the work that you do and how it fits into the institution and being clear about that, um, having methods in place that you can share with others uh, is, uh, are all critical to that role. At the same time, when leadership at the executive level changes, uh, that requires a lot of flexibility um, and an open mind to different management styles, Mm. uh, different priorities and um, different visions, uh, and being able to tie that back to both the core mission of the organization, uh, Mm. your people on your own team, sort of making sure that people are aware of what's shifting um, and why and how they can be a part of it. Uh, and, and yeah, uh, realigning or reinforcing the priorities with your own, within your own programs and your own team. Yeah. So I think we're all starting to talk about like how, how we communicate with the people in our organizations. And I mean that really generally, right? Like it's our, it's our colleagues, it's our superiors, it's the artists that we bring in for, you know, more discreet programming or events. So let's get into it and talk about communicating internally. What are good ways that we do that? One, like I know at FAB, we have a weekly staff meeting, which tends to end up being like a sum up of the work we've done and then a synthesis of that and some direction about how to move forward. We're also a weird example because uh, for those of you who have been to the office, um, you especially know that it is um, the it is the size of a small bedroom. Um, so for us, it's never really an issue of FaceTime, but really more how do we make space for, uh, frankly, privacy that will help us focus. So if you guys could maybe talk a little bit about it, your institutions, like what are the methods for empowering communication within all those different kinds of people with whom we work? Well, I'm happy to jump in. Mm -hmm. 
with an organization of our size that's about 22 full-time staff, you sort of hover between a place where you need a certain amount of systematization that's mm. centralized within an institution um, and a certain amount of the space uh, for people to work under their own processes. We also have an open plan. People have described our office as sometimes they walk in and they say, it's like a library in here because people are so quiet. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I try to be mindful of my generation, but I'm the walk around and talk to people at their desks generation. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I find that's how I find out things about people. But I also understand that um, for especially for some of the younger generation, it's it's kind of jarring. Mm -hmm. um, and so you also have to keep in mind what you're your yeah. role in the institution is. So there's that piece of it. But um, I think also, I think for any organization, that's a work in progress when you're not so small that everybody knows everything that's happening. We use electronic platforms, digital platforms and mm -hmm. project management tools. But I think at the end of the day, uh, if I were to speak about my personal management style, I would say that face-to-face -face communication mm -hmm. regularly mm -hmm. enough and not too often, not too regimented, and not managing to meeting mm -hmm. uh, is something that I would prioritize. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to answer this a little bit through the side door here. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So with any institution, a lot of information gets lost, especially mm -hmm. cross-departmentally. Mm -hmm. So with that knowledge, I actually believe in a strategy of disruption. Mm -hmm. And I actually do believe that is why I was hired. Hmm. So as an artist working within the institution, much of my job is not allowing programs to take on a rhythm that is static. Mm -hmm. So always or attempting to generate new ideas in, in a way that is actually true to being responsive to our community and school partnerships. One thing that works for one group certainly doesn't work for all groups, mm -hmm. right? And so allowing enough freedom and flexibility to truly be responsive and allowing programs to always move and be reshaped. I find that that is my role specifically because I am an artist and disruptor working from the inside out. So mm. rupturing certain spaces that just get institutionalized. And by institutionalized, I mean simply just take on a specific form and are just getting, are, are just, you know, people take for granted or are just used to a specific shape and form. And so one of the most important things that I ever internalized was that sometimes to get the thing done, you have to identify the person in the room that is not hmm. on paper, the most important person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I constantly within these institutional spaces look and try to devise a way to find the person that's going to allow me to get that idea done. How do you find that person? Well, going back to something that you said, it's getting to know people and what they do. Mm -hmm. Because I find that in each position, there's a complexity there that maybe is not on the surface. And really understanding how people move within their positions is one way of, of knowing 
how to navigate the institutional world in order to really generate ideas and get them done so that they don't just stay on the table. I think that, as Sean, what you're saying about being a disruptor in the space as an artist is, you know, in terms of thinking about being creative and uh, innovative and responsive mm -hmm. in a field, especially working in the arts, I've, I've felt that the charge that contemporary artists are giving us is to take a critical and creative approach to our lives, mm -hmm. whoever we are. And so if we're working in the field in whatever role we are working in, you kind of have to take that charge seriously. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm, I feel fortunate to work in an organization that has allowed me to be very creative in terms of uh, developing programs that are responsive to needs that I see out there. I think that it's working around artists has really inspired me in that way to think of my position as a creative practice. But I, I think in general, this question that we have in the field about innovation is part of that kind of charge to ourselves. What is the philosophy we have about the role that we have in an institution in whatever role it is and our capacity to be creative, make a contribution, I'm going to segue a bit, but as a regrantor, as an as an organization that receives block funding and then awards it out, um, I run programs that have been around since 1983. Mm -hmm. uh, they're cyclical. They are funded by the city and the state for decades. Mm -hmm. um, and the conversation that I have with new staff when I bring them on board is always, you know, these programs have been around, and hopefully they'll be around right. uh, before and after your time at LMCC. Mm -hmm. So it's important to have your own thoughts about your role in that program, what you as an individual can bring to the, the artists that we're supporting in that program. And that's, you know, to be able to come away with a sense of personal satisfaction about what you've been able to do or not. And I think that was a lesson I learned when someone who was really bright and um, so talented on my staff, we were walking in the park we were in Chicago on a conference. She started talking about the grant-making program. She, she said, yeah, but it's already done. Everything's done already. There's nothing to do. It's finished. And we had a long conversation where I said, well, you know, the only people working on it are the three of us. Right. You know, if things need to change, if it could be something else, we could do those things together. And, and sometimes you don't even realize um, that someone doesn't see that doors open until yeah. you kind of have that unexpected conversation. I love what you said about looking at your position as a creative practice, mm -hmm. even within the institutional world. That's, I really, I'm going to process that for a while because what I've, one question I always try to ask myself, even on the, on a daily basis is, is this the best way we could be doing this? Mm -hmm. And that could be on a really minute level, something like our youth pass, which was a free membership for teens, mm -hmm. was when I arrived still being conducted on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And so stacks of paper would be handed over for registration into our email blast. Something small and simple took up so much time mm -hmm. because it was not being reinvented, right? But even in my artistic practice, I try to ask, is this the best way I could be doing this? So it could be outreach. It could be 
engagement. And these are sort of strategies that cross over into my role at the New Museum, certainly. And as an artist, I want to pride myself on knowing my areas better than anyone else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to enter my work and the fields that my work touches and be so confident and able and being able to speak not only for, only for myself, but in the case of my performance and, and artistic practice, some very serious questions surrounding our lives. And so oftentimes that means stepping out of my artistic practice to just be educated. Mm-hmm. Can we talk, however, concretely about how do we speak up um, when when we notice that something could be done, I'll say differently, and you know, with the ho- hopefully in a way that's more inclusive and and equitable. Um, even in my role, where I'm the executive director, so there's no one in the office who's my boss, but I have a board, and I have to bring things to them. And there's lots of changes, big and small, that we've made in my tenure at Fab, and I'm really lucky to have a board who listens and works with me, and also gives me a um, you know, a good amount of trust and freedom, but I've had to learn how to say like, you know, how to scaffold things and be like, okay, well, what I see is this and, and where I think we want to go is here. And we decided to, that we wanted to go there because we worked as a team and we talked to our community. Um, and so what we need to do or one thing, one way we could get it done is this way. And what do you guys think? Um, and before any of that scaffolding happened was also, I had to learn, um, what it, what what to bring to the board. Um, you know, I wasn't an ED in my previous role. So uh, that was like a pretty concrete observational skill that I had to, I've had to develop. And again, I'm lucky to be surrounded by people who are um, generous listeners, and that makes it easier. But yeah, if you guys could talk a little bit about like how do we speak up um, and and how do we how do we get those changes, however, discreet, however internal, how do we get those changes made? Well, I'm going to going to piggyback off of something you said earlier, Risa, and um, it may not actually have been on this podcast. It may have been in a meeting earlier today where you said, it's important to frame your ideas as a suggestion as opposed to a complaint. Mm. And I find that <laughs> highly important mm. to formulate your thoughts mm-hmm. and your suggestions as a recommendation that has been really thought through and organized. I too, although I oversee many of the programs and are responsible for the programs, have bosses. Mm-hmm. And so to connect what we've all been talking about, I think beyond just having the idea is being able to express it. Mm -hmm. And then outside of the group dynamic meeting, knowing when you have to just say to someone, listen, we need an hour to sit down and talk through this one specific idea Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because we need to move on it quickly. Mm -hmm. And this is the reason why Mm -hmm. so much gets lost in departmental meetings. It's really understanding, identifying those moments when, you know what, this has to happen now. Sean, your role is interesting in light of 
the sort of role that my department occupies in my own institution, um, which is that of being uh, very focused on community-engaged artistic projects. We're also a grant maker that is, you know, we're in our grant making, we're really committed to reaching a diverse range of artists and organizations. And part of that is the mandate of giving away government money, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but also the belief that you need to create an equitable process for right. people to be able to access the resource mm-hmm. to support the work they're doing. Um, and whether or not a department like that starts to feel siloed in its approaches mm. to engagement mm. uh, and have its sort of own way of doing face-to-face time with people in the neighborhood, developing partnerships um, that are ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, the question of whether or not those relationships end up sort of accruing to the benefit of the larger institution is sort of a, is a leadership question as well. Yes. And I think that's a kind of, a question of how we share our practices with our colleagues um, in, you know, Mm -hmm. in my case, in the senior level um, and the opportunities we see for learning from each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, uh, you know, so going back to the importance Mm -hmm. of communication, Mm -hmm. um, you know, how, how do you, how do you make change? You know, some of that, on the one hand, there there's the suggestion that can be made in the moment of something that really, I think, needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's also the sort of question of modeling practice mm-hmm. over time. Right. Um, and I, th- I think I will say that, you know, there, having been invited to speak um, on several occasions around questions of diversity and equity in the arts, I do think that people don't talk enough about their practices, the practices they have in place um, mm-hmm. and sharing those practices, I think, could could be a useful step for all of us in terms of making change. Yeah, totally. That's that's very much at the heart of, of why um, Denise Shumay, who's our marketing director and associate producer on this episode, uh, why Denise and I wanted to convene this episode and convene it with both of you. So, yeah, thanks mm-hmm. for reminding us of that. I just realized that I tend to be actually kind of vague and abstract when I talk about practice. I'm like, oh, we should share our practices, but I'm not going to tell you what they are. Um, I I think it's relevant to say that right now, especially because we're feeling it. Mm -hmm. Um, We've had a a program manager who'd been with us for six years, Mm -hmm. uh, Mandarin speaker, wonderful colleague, Hao Wen Wong, who left us to go to the Mid-Atlantic Art Foundation, Mm -hmm. um, has, you know, has put us, that, that departure, which I think, Mm-hmm. Very excited for him. And I think he did such wonderful work with us. Mm-hmm. Um, having someone who spent the time to meet so many artists in, you know, Manhattan's Chinatown, which is one of our priority mm-hmm. neighborhoods, providing the kind of technical assistance to bring people into a grant making process who have language barriers and otherwise mm-hmm. would not be coming to the table. Um his departure caused a lot of anxiety. Um, mm-hmm. We're talking about a goodbye party, uh, dim sum lunch in which we ran into grantees who were coming up to the table with their grant proposals, yeah. you know, their drafts to kind of catch him before he left. Um, and, and you know, in terms of thinking about a hire to replace someone like that, yeah. uh, the value of those relationships, um, it's just a reminder that um, all of these processes and practices too have to be renewed. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 And that and that kind of deep 
awareness of a community, especially when you're a service org. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you guys have all of Manhattan to deal with and we have the Lower East Side and yeah, being aware that there are just that there are language barriers and that then as a service org, it's kind of incumbent upon you to do what you can to remove those barriers Mm -hmm. and do that through those interpersonal relationships is so, so important. Um, and, and it, yeah, and it really does. I'm I'm so glad you brought you both brought this up because it really does rely on interpersonal relationships. Yes. I think mm-hmm. what happens mm-hmm. often is that we get stuck in our rhythms, mm-hmm. and we also begin to subconsciously believe that it's just going to happen on its own because things have been put in place. You've you've and even when you go through a process of reinvigorating a program, then it's happening, and then you lose sight or at least I tried to not lose sight that in order for things to happen, you have to show up physically. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have to, being a face to the name Mm -hmm. is not a one moment strategy. It's being really invested to shaking people's hands, going to their programming, Mm -hmm. showing support on their world, and really just being invested in this relationship as people. Yeah. I'm going to let that ground the close to end of the round table and move us to a final round table question, which is, um, can we each go around and identify a leader in our life and, and in the part of our life that intersects with our work? If you feel like it's not appropriate to name a name, we're not doing this to gossip, so maybe just talk about what they did. Um, but if it's positive, I hope you'll name a name because, you know, folks deserve credit. And also talk about how that impact they made on your life, positive, negative, otherwise, uh, has changed the way that you function as a leader. I'd like to contribute a name, and that is Mark DeSouvero. I worked at Socrates Sculpture Park for 11 years prior to my arrival at the new museum. We have a very close relationship. And when I first started at Socrates and I've been there, I had been there in varying capacities, the last as the director of public programs, he was one of the few people that I know and had the the privilege of working under in some strange way. He wasn't my boss. But as the founder of the park, he was one of the few people that I know who you can, you could just tell being around him embodied the vision of the park. And just to give a little background, this is a five acre park on the East River in Long Island City, Queens. Now I'm from Queens, didn't even know that place existed until I started working there. And just seeing how art public art could serve as a catalyst for really fostering a community spirit and being a place that a neighborhood could be proud of and really being a place that could revitalize its surroundings simply because it was a place. Mm-hmm. You know, this we this term placemaking, Socrates does it better than I think most places, simply because it allows people to be however and utilize the park however they wish to utilize it, whether it is through engaging 
uh, the engagement with the programs or meditation in the park or utilizing the waterfront or actually being you know savvy enough to to look and really look and really look at the work mm. it allowed people to be in that space and converge in a way that was on their own terms and in many respect the art was a disguise or an excuse for getting people together and that is something that i've taken on in life as in my own artistic practice but also in my role as uh, as a person that develops community relationships allowing or, or or going to people on their terms mm -hmm. and meeting them in their worlds mm -hmm. you know there are so many amazing people <laughs> i feel i've had the pleasure to learn from um i'm just i'm going to talk briefly about two mm -hmm. uh one is the first person i worked with uh and worked for in new york city mm. olivia georgia who was the director of the Newhouse Center for Contemporary Art at Snug Harbor Cultural Center in Staten Island, uh, where I started to work in 1996, uh, the day after the blizzard of 1996. Um, the amount of trust she invested in me was extraordinary. I was probably 23 years old. I got a huge key ring that opened up doors all over that site i i couldn't even say now um but she gave me the right information that i needed to do my job she was always available to me when i needed to talk to her mm -hmm. she had an ambition mm -hmm. that was often greater than our capacity um but i think we all learned to be really uh to be to think big um to be creative to make the most of a really fascinating uh, historic site being adapted for reuse by mm -hmm. content with contemporary artists, um, really pushing our own imagination uh, and bringing fascinating artists in to work with us. Um, I like to cite one time when uh, we had some, and there was a problem, our preparator walked out, it was an argument with an artist, Things were really not going well, and I called her up to tell her uh, it was a weekend that there were some major problems before an opening the next day. And she said to me, oh, my God, that's terrible, Kay. What are you going to do? Mm. And for me, that was it was such a pivotal learning moment, and I think about it a lot because— you know, there there's certainly moments, and I think in, in leadership roles, you need to be there to support your staff when they when they need you and in the ways that you can. In that moment, there wasn't really anything that she could do. I was the person on site, mm -hmm. and I was the person who mm -hmm. could fix the problem. Mm -hmm. But there was a clarity in there that really kind of woke me up in that moment uh, and helped me to sort of figure out what my own, understand my own role and agency in figuring out that problem. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've always really respected her for that, for really giving, giving me the parameters and just letting me run with it. Um, and we're still, we're still in touch. Um, our relationships really evolved, but I, I'll always be so grateful for the opportunity that she gave me to really just spread my, spread my arms, mm -hmm. my wings, whatever they, want to call them. Um, I also want to call out Annie Frederick, who is the founder of Hester Street Collaborative, mm -hmm. who I had the great pleasure, oh, she's not there anymore, but the founding uh, director, 
Um, I had the great pleasure of meeting when I first started at LMCC, and she was the head of what was a project and was not yet Hester Street Collaborative. Mm. Uh, and some of you may be familiar with them. They're, they are um, really wonderful organization uh, in community-engaged design mm -hmm. uh, and helping to gather input and involve communities in the in decisions about the future of their neighborhoods. Um, and they were doing a particular project that was an education, design education and art education project on the Lower East Side mm -hmm. uh, that we had the great fortune to fund. Uh, we were able to uh, develop resources as she grew that organization into one that <clears throat> we eventually were very fortunate to partner with in 2013. Um, she had such a uh, clarity of vision, a humanity around her team uh, around thinking together in a really personal way, uh, holding on to sort of the personal uh, enrichment that the work uh, gave to her, mm -hmm. uh, bringing those values into the work that she did every day, having a real sincerity around working with people in her own community and getting to know everyone in the neighborhood and to work with them directly. Um, and then to think very conscientiously about handing the baton to the next mm. leader. From a personal standpoint, also as a peer, I really respect her decision to move on to another chapter in her life. Always a pleasure to work with Annie Frederick. Mm. Um, before I begin, I want to thank you guys for naming three people connected to three institutions that our listeners will hopefully do some research about today. And then I'm going to name, I'm going to do two also. So super capital L leaders um, that have impacted my work here, especially on the Lower East Side and at FAB. Uh, I'm going to go with Council Member Rosie Mendez and three members of her staff that I engage with often. And they're John Blasco, Vanessa Lopez, and Carlina Rivera. And when we talk about showing up, these are folks who show up and they model that for me. Um, and they have a lot of showing up to do as part of their jobs, right? That's like a big piece of their work. And the fact that they do it so genuinely and they take moments and I, and 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 speak with community members um, and really listen reminds me that I don't get to complain about how much time I have in the day because if they can do it, I can do it. Um, and we certainly benefit from from that showing up in so many ways at FAB and in this community and in this moment where I think um, many of us have some doubts about certain elected officials, it's really great to have people you can trust in office. And I'm super grateful for that and for what I learned from them again every time I see them. And then the other leader that I want to talk about, maybe more just as Risa Shoup, and this will come as no surprise to anyone who knows me, of course, is Lucien Zion, my former boss at The Invisible Dog. Um, and Lucien had a, had a tons of very positive impacts on my life. But the thing I want to talk about here is that he always reminded me to pay attention to the details, not because I wasn't necessarily detail oriented, although in some moments I missed a whole lot, but more, I think 
he did it so that I didn't get comfortable thinking that I was doing a good job of paying attention to details and that especially in the arts where you where you encounter tons of nuance and you shouldn't assume that any one theater maker or dance maker or painter or sculptor makes their work in the same way. And you should also constantly think about how how your work is being transposed to the public and how your space, because we have a space at the invisible dog is being received by the public. Yeah. You've have, you have to get in there with the details and you have to obsess over them. And as, as a leader, as someone with privilege, that's my job. I have, I am being paid to take the time to do it. So I really need to do it. And I really appreciate having his, uh, his really beautiful accented voice in my head all the time telling me Chupa, you don't do the details, do the details. Um, that's a terrible <laughs> impression, but if he's listening, he'll like it. Um, so yeah, pay attention to the details. Thanks, boss. All right, so roundtable level unlocked. And now we're going to move on to our very first round of In First Place, which is a closing segment that we have devised that gives uh, our guests and myself an opportunity to talk super quickly about place-based projects and happenings that we have been a part of recently or will be a part of in the future. And so my contribution to this first ever In First Place lightning round is... um, I'm going to talk about the meeting that Sean and I were both in this morning. Uh, It's a group of artists and cultural workers here on the Lower East Side who are coming together and have been coming together somewhat regularly to talk about how New York City's first ever cultural plan is going to impact our community and what um, needs, challenges, and opportunities we want to be reporting out from our community when we have opportunities to talk to the folks making the plan. And I'm going to do, I'm going to try to bridge two gaps here for a minute and say that Hester Street Collaborative, who, um, whose founding director Kay just spoke about so beautifully, is the lead consultant helping to create the plan. And I myself as um, a member of Naturally Occurring Cultural Districts New York, have also been consulting on the citywide plan. Um, And so please get involved in your community. Uh, If you're working on the Lower East Side and and you want to do stuff with us, you can find me at FAB. But wherever you are in this city, this is a great opportunity to, again, talk about your needs, your challenges, the opportunities you have that you want, and be heard by city government um, so please, please speak up and um, go to createnyc.org uh, to help you do so. Sean. Yes. So I'm super thrilled to announce an upcoming project of mine in collaboration with Recess. They have been donated a new satellite space in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And in collaboration with myself and Brooklyn Justice Initiatives, we are dedicating this space as a platform to create workshops with court-involved youth 16 to 20 years old. Mm -hmm. So what what that means is that for four weeks, it's an arts diversion program that is court-mandated. And then I am hoping to inspire that same youth to join me for another four weeks in a stipend-based or incentivized program to co-produce and co-design some type of arts project with me. The curriculum which I'm designing is 
based on storytelling, which is then translated into performance without the voice. Mm-hmm. And what that allows us to do collectively is look at these stories through a different set of eyes, to look at the circumstances and nuances surrounding an individual's experience with having just been arrested. Mm-hmm. In the front space, which will serve at times as a gallery, we're hoping to mirror that same process and reconfigure these narratives that are emerging with the youth, with a broader public of artists, educators, and youth, really with the main objective in both classrooms to think about how we frame narratives of criminal mm-hmm. and to really reimagine the language that we use to define these criminalized bodies. Mm-hmm. LMCC has been working with partners on the Lower East Side since 2013 on a project called Paths to Pier 42. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been working with Hester Street Collaborative, mm-hmm. who's been coming up a lot mm-hmm. in this conversation, yeah. Two Bridges Neighborhood Council, Good Old Lower East Side, and the Lower East Side Ecology Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been commissioning artists who have been collaborating with local residents and stakeholders to develop projects for Pier 42, a portion of Pier 42 on the waterfront to activate a temporary park. Um, with a project like that, with a lot of moving parts, a lot of really committed, longstanding organizations in the neighborhood, we had a great schedule in place, great processes in place. We found great artists who were really excited uh, and had developed their own methods for reaching out to people and developing projects that were collaborative. Um, but any in any project, there's that sort of wiggle room around how responsive can you be to someone else's ideas mm-hmm. or input that mm-hmm. comes from people who live in the neighborhood. If you go to Pier 42 right now, um, we are about to deinstall the pier um, at the end of what was an unintended fourth year of programming. Hmm. Um, it was a modified season of programming. In the past, we featured five new commissioned works and projects by artists and a season of program public programming uh, developed by the different partners. Uh, this year, the Pier 42 park site, was uh, the construction was delayed. We were going to be ending this project mm-hmm. uh, last summer. Uh, and they asked us to activate the site again this summer just to keep it open, keep it available to the community, keep the momentum going for fundraising for this permanent site. Um, so we worked with our partners to uh, to develop a modified plan mm-hmm. and to accomplish some things that we didn't accomplish in the first three years. So if you go out there, but if you go out there today, what you'll see is some projects that are being deinstalled. I could talk about this project all day, and I can see that I'm rambling a little bit. Mm-hmm. But if you go out there now, uh, you'll see a shipping container with a uh, mural on it uh, by the legendary Lower East Side mural artist Chico, nice. uh, who worked with teenagers mm-hmm. in Vision Urbana's Empire Mentorship Initiative this year, actually with grant support from LMCC, mm. um, not as a as an official project of the past to Pier 42, but it came about, uh, well, we invited the project to Pier 42 uh, through the grant-making program mm-hmm. because of a relationship that had been developed early on because someone who is a community leader who tries not to have an official role, his name is Sam, Samuel Vasquez, mm came out to mm-hmm. me on the, on the waterfront a couple of years ago and said, where are the kids? Like, how are you going to get the kids out mm-hmm. here? 
you know, you have to go to the churches. You need to talk to these people. And I said, okay, well, then let's go. Like, let's go talk to these people. So he took me to a couple of uh, pastors and priests Mm -hmm. uh, in the Lower East Side. Uh, And one of them uh, at Primitive Church on East Broadway uh, connected us to Vision Urbana, which is an affiliated nonprofit organization with this um, mentorship program. Uh, their mentorship program director, Eric Diaz, was really excited about working with an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he worked directly with Stephanie Diamond, who was one of our commissioned mm-hmm. artists in 2015, mm-hmm. uh, to develop walking tours with a group of middle, middle school students in the neighborhood. Um And that relationship just continued. He found out about our grant-making resource, uh, applied for a project that was supported the next year by long and meandering description. um, We're just really proud that that project came to fruition. And uh, I'm personally really proud of that kind of path. You just kind of, Mm -hmm. the the path of relationships, meeting people, listening to people, learning from them, uh, and celebrating what can come out of that. I'm so glad we did this segment and I got to hear more about both of those projects. That's awesome, you guys. Thank you both so much. And this concludes our episode on leadership. I want to say thank you to our guests, Kate Takeda and Sean Leonardo, for your time and sharing your experience with us today. Where can we find you on the internet, Kay? You can find me at Lower Manhattan Cultural Council's website, lmcc.net. Not org, you'll get a construction consortium. (laughs) You can find LMCC on Facebook, Lower Manhattan Cultural Council, and you can find me on Facebook too. I would tell you my Twitter handle if I were a frequent Twitterer. (laughs) Very good. Sean, where can we find you on the internet? Right on. Well, for New Museum, it's newmuseum.org, and you connect with all the social media platforms from that website for my own practice. It is elcleonardo.com that you can also use to find me on Facebook and Instagram. And then a special shout out to the Recess Program Mm -hmm. Assembly, recess.org forward slash assembly. Don't worry if you're a listener and you couldn't write that down. Uh, When you go to the website, uh, when you go to iTunes, when you go to Stitcher to find out more about uh, Artwork the Podcast, all of that stuff will be written and clickable for you. So don't worry, we're going to give you that later on the internet. Um, We also want to give a special shout out of gratitude to Cynthia Pringle for coordinating uh, space for us to record this episode in today. We want to say a big thanks to Public Access TV for providing today's opening and closing music. And we want to thank uh, Denise Shumay, our associate producer, and Timothy McAleer, our audio engineer. Uh, Next episode, we talk about what we've been affectionately calling the IDGAF episode, where we're going to talk about gratitude, the things that we have no gratitude for, the things that we don't get any gratitude for, uh, and acknowledge the silent and intangible labor that no one ever talks about. Um, A gentle but happy reminder that Fab Giving Season is here right now. If you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll go to our website and make a donation at www.fabnyc.org. And while you're at it, click around and learn more about all the work we do. Your support means that we can do more and better together. 
We're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and all the places that you find podcasts. So please subscribe today. Tell your friends, make reviews. Uh, we want to keep this going. Again, I am Risa Shoup, and on behalf of our guests and my team at Fab, thank you for listening, and please follow us on Twitter at 4 Arts Block and tell us what you think. Bye now. 